0: But I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you've been with us, you know that we've spent the past month looking at this long and glorious sentence, 12 verses in which Paul has praised God for giving his people every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, involving the whole Godhead in which God the Father planned our salvation and Christ the Son accomplished that plan so that we could have every spiritual blessing in union with Him. And and God the Holy Spirit applied salvation to us, dwelling in us and bringing us into union with Christ. Well, this morning we want to move on and look at the remainder of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul turns now to pray for his fellow believers. I think most of us are used to praying for one another, and we pray for one another's specific needs. And God encourages us to do that, but when Paul thinks of his fellow believers in other churches and other cities, what does he long for? What does he pray for when he thinks of his fellow believers? We have an answer to that question here in Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. And so if you would, join me as we read together from Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. For this reason... as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God, how we thank you for your word which you've given to us. And I pray that this spirit of God, this spirit of wisdom and revelation would be at work in our hearts this morning to Give us an understanding of your word, to give us a growing knowledge of God and of the salvation that you have worked for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you, particularly maybe those of you who have been in the youth group, are aware that my exposure to movies is pretty small compared to most people my age. So I'm aware that this may have stunted my movie taste slightly, but. I would declare that the original Pixar movies are masterpieces of cinematic art full of wit and wisdom and fantastic and philosophical genius. So yes, I realize they're kids' movies, but I think I get as much out of them and enjoy them as much as anyone else. And The Incredibles is probably my favorite of the original Pixar movies. The Incredibles is a story of superheroes who have run into trouble because of lawsuits filed against them for not saving people well enough or saving people who didn't want to be saved It follows the story of bob parr mr incredible and his wife elastigirl and at one point in the story mr incredible has run into some trouble and his wife says what am i going to do and her friend replies what are you going to do is that a question remind him of who he is mr incredible And remember who you are, Elastigirl, and then go, fight, win. In other words, you're superheroes. Just remember your superpowers and you'll be fine. Of course, we step out of Pixar back into real life. And here, too, we find that evil is quite real. The world, the flesh, and the devil are in full-scale attack against God and his people. And we look at ourselves and our ongoing sin and our our weakness and our need and the suffering around us are are glaringly obvious. But equally obvious, we are not superheroes. And as much as we all wished was otherwise when we are young, we don't have superpowers. So where is our source of strength going to come from? Where will our hope be found as we go through our lives day by day in the face of evil And our own failures and sin. When Paul thinks of his fellow believers in Ephesus. And his desire is for them to persevere and to stay strong in their faith. What does he pray for? Where is their hope of strength? That's what we find in this chapter. And we find that Paul prays that in order to be steadfast in their faith. He prays that they might grow in the knowledge of God. And of God's salvation that he has given them and of God's power that is at work in them. That's the focus of Paul's prayer, and that's what we need in order to live as God's people in this world. And so this morning, what I want to see from Ephesians 1 is the circumstances of Paul's prayer, the content of Paul's prayer, and the confidence of Paul's prayer. And let's begin with the circumstances of Paul's prayer. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. So if you have your Bibles, look at verses 15 and 16 we see there, what what sparks Paul's prayer in the first place? What leads Paul to pray? Well, he says that the reason he's moved to pray is that having heard, or excuse me, having just discussed this great salvation, he has now heard that the Ephesians have received that salvation by faith. Specifically, he says after discussing this wonderful salvation that he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. And here we're reminded again of key marks of genuine faith in christ the follower of jesus is the one who has put his faith in christ trusting him as the son of god who became man as their savior from sin and the follower of christ lives with a love for all of the saints a christ-like love that serves and cares for one another in the church a, a christ-like love that they display to all the saints in the church And Paul's response when he hears of this faith and this love is to give unceasing praise and thanks to God and then to remember these fellow believers in his prayers. And this is actually a pattern if you compare Paul's letters. If you were to look at at Colossians and Philemon and Philippians and Thessalonians, we, we actually see this same pattern over and over again that Paul hears about the faith and love of fellow believers in another city. He thanks God for them And then he prays for them. And specifically, he prays that they would grow in the knowledge of their God and in the wisdom and understanding of the salvation God's given them. Colossians 1, for instance, echoes this almost directly when Paul writes, We always thank God when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. And then a few verses later, he prays that they would be filled with knowledge and grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. And as we compare these letters and this pattern in Paul's prayer, I think we begin to get a a bit of a picture of Paul's prayer life. And as I think about Paul, I I imagine him maybe, maybe in his prison cell. Or maybe on a journey from one city to another. Think about all of the, the downtime he would have had between walking from one place to another. Or, or on a boat as he, as he rode from one place to another. Or in his prison cell. And, and as he knows the maybe restlessness of sleepless nights with the burden of the churches on his heart. He turns to pray for them. And his desire for them and his prayer for them is their growth and strength in Christ. And I think this gives us a beautiful pattern of prayer for one another. We pray regularly for one another's needs. How often do we pray for one another that we would grow in the knowledge of God, that the eyes of our hearts might be open to know the salvation God has given us? You know, just on Thursday, a number of us were part of a night of intercessory prayer led by the MATLACs, some of our supported missionaries. And what they encouraged us to do was to pray Scripture for one another. This would be a beautiful Scripture, to pray for one another as God's people. And so here's the circumstances of Paul's prayer, that he hears of their faith in Jesus and their love for their saints, and it moves him to thank God for them and then pray for them and their growth in Christ. Now let's move on and look at verses 17 to 19. And here we see the content of Paul's prayer. And as Paul remembers the Ephesians, what does he pray for specifically? Well, Paul mentions two things that are very closely related. First, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. In other words, Paul's great and central desire in prayer is that the Ephesians would have a growing knowledge of God through the Spirit of God at work in them. Now, the Spirit here is specifically called a Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation. And when we think of wisdom and revelation, both in the New Testament particularly, refer to understanding who God is and what His will is for His people. Particularly understanding God and His will of salvation through Jesus Christ and how we're to respond. And, of course, these are things that we can't figure out on our own. You and I can't just walk out and figure out and discover who God is and what His will is for us in life, apart from His Word and His Spirit. And this is part of the role that the Spirit of God has played throughout Scripture. I, as I read this in this prayer for a spirit of wisdom and understanding, my mind immediately goes back to Isaiah. Isaiah eleven two. 2 And in this passage, God prophesied that a Messiah would come, and he said that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on this Messiah, and then he describes that Spirit as the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And of course, if we fast forward into the New Testament, we find that his baptism, Jesus' baptism, that this Spirit does descend to rest on Jesus. But then, we find further that Jesus promises to pour the same spirit out on his people who respond to him in faith, which means that the spirit of God that Jesus is going to pour out on us is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, such that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have wisdom from God because the spirit who searches the things of God has revealed them to us freely. What an immense privilege That God's Spirit that He has poured out on us is one of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. Of course, when the Spirit searches the things of God and reveals them to us, the Spirit is not telling us sort of random, cool, divine trivia. Uh, The Spirit is is not promising to to help us make the right decision in every single instance in life. When, When we read about the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God, What the Spirit is revealing to us is who God is and what He calls us to. As the Spirit tells us what God has done for us in Christ and what God loves and hates and how God calls us to live, the Spirit is enabling us to grow in the knowledge of Him and in wisdom and understanding to live as His people. As I was thinking about this, I was was thinking about an experience that some of you may have had. Maybe some of you have had the privilege of talking to your father or your grandfather or maybe great-grandfather who who fought, say, in World War II. And if you were to sit with this maybe father or grandfather or great-grandfather and they were to talk about stories from their World War II days, what I hear so many people say is, you know, I never really knew all that about my grandfather. I feel like I know my grandfather now because of the stories he's told me. Because when we hear the stories about what our grandfather did fighting in World War II, we don't just get facts about this thing he did or that thing he did. We actually get to know our grandfather, what what happened to him and who he was and what he suffered or what he was part of. And in a similar way, as the Spirit of God brings us to God and unfolds to us all that God has done for us in Christ and all that God loves and hates, we are actually growing not just in knowledge of facts, but in the knowledge of God himself and who he is. And that is our highest privilege. Of course, we might say, well, I can sit on the floor and listen to my grandfather in stories about World War II, but how does the Spirit reveal God to me? How does the Spirit reveal to me the knowledge of God? Well, it's largely through prayer and His Word. Harry Ironside is one of the former pastors of Moody Church in Chicago. And Ironside shares a story from early in his days of ministry of going to visit a man in his congregation in the hospital who was dying of tuberculosis. And this elderly man could barely speak above a whisper. But when Harry Ironside came in, he said to him, Young man, sit down a little and let us talk of the things of God. And he proceeded to open his Bible and explain passage after passage, teaching truths that Ironside had never seen or appreciated before. And astounded, Ironside said to him after a time, Where did you get these things? Can you give me a book that will teach me these things? Can you tell me what seminary you went to that you learned these things? To which the old man replied, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees in a mud floor of a sod cottage in Northern Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word to my heart. And He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I could have ever learned in any seminary in the world. Isn't that the truth? That if we come to the Lord through prayer with His Word, His Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of God, the knowledge of God, Promises to reveal more of Him to us. But of course, there's no shortcuts to this. When we hear this, we think, oh, well, maybe there's a a quick YouTube video or maybe there's an app that I could, could access the knowledge of God here. But that's not the case. For the knowledge of our God is found in time spent on our knees with our Bibles open, praying that the Spirit of wisdom and revelation would give us the knowledge of God. And so often we doubt that. Or we dabble in it and feel like we haven't gotten enough payoff from it. Or we just get distracted from it. But this was Paul's great prayer for the Ephesians. That they would grow in their knowledge of God that is given to them by the Spirit of God. And if we would grow in that knowledge, there is not one thing we can just, hey, take five minutes to do. It is a lifetime of engagement with the Word of God through prayer. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson argues that when we look at Scripture, a lot of times we want to come away from a sermon with a quick, good, practical application, a simple directive that we can kind of go and put to practice in life. But he says, Paul saw to the heart of the need of the Ephesians. It wasn't a quick life directive. What they needed was to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know God. Because to know who God is and what He has done for us will always be the one thing we need more than anything else, no matter what challenge we are facing in life. Are we facing grief and loss? Well, then to know who God is and what He has done for us is our greatest comfort. Are we facing long-term chronic pain or suffering? To know who God is and what He has guaranteed to us in Christ, what is coming one day is the one thing we need. Are we facing our sin and our failures? Are we facing the sins of others against us? Are we facing material need or the mundanity of the daily grind to know who God is and what he has given to us in Christ and what he has promised to us and who we are by union with Jesus is the one thing that will help us and ground us and give us hope. That is spirit-given wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God. And that's what Paul prays for, for his Ephesian believers. Well, then in verse 18, Paul goes even further. He he explains maybe with more detail what this knowledge of God looks like. Paul prays that the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts might be enlightened. And of course, the eyes of our hearts refer to our ability to see and to understand spiritual truths. And he prays that we might Be able to understand these truths that we might fully understand the salvation that God has given us. Particularly, he says, Paul prays that we might know the hope to which God has called us. As most of you know, the the word hope in the Bible doesn't refer to a, a wish, as if I kind of hope this happens. In Scripture, the word hope refers to something that is guaranteed because of a promise that God has made. Hope, as Hebrews said, is the confidence or the assurance of what we have not yet seen, because we know that God has secured it for us in Christ. And so the hope to which God has called us is the promise of living in fellowship with God forever, accepted by Him with our sins forgiven for Christ's sake. The promise of living with Him where we are made perfectly holy and every tear is wiped away. And when and when we have this hope. We are grounded in what Christ has done for us. And it is typically when this hope begins to fade in the face of the lures and temptations of the world or the discouragements of life that we begin to be shaken. And so Paul prays that the Ephesians might know the hope to which they're called. Then Paul prays that they might know the riches of his glorious inheritance. If the hope to which we are called is a prayer for the assurance of what will be ours in Christ. The riches of His glorious inheritance is a prayer that we might know the extent of the blessings that are given to us in Christ. And we can begin to rehearse these things. On that last day, we will see God. And when we see God, we will be changed to be like Him, transformed fully as new creations on that last day, we will be brought to dwell in the new Jerusalem with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be made co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God, ruling with Him over creation. We will have the joy of joining with all creatures to give praise and honor and worship to Him. Think of the riches of the inheritance that we have. And once again, this knowledge is exactly what we need to stand firm. The more we know the glorious riches offered to us in Christ, the more we will be able to stand steadfast in the face of loss. Or the more we will be able to reject temptation in its offers. Because as as Paul says, he counts all other things as rubbish. Why? How? Compared to the surpassing excellence that's offered to him in Christ Jesus, his Lord when we know the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and the glorious riches that he gives us, that is how we can stand strong in the face of temptation or difficulty. And so Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the assurance of the hope God has called them to and the riches of the inheritance that is theirs in Christ. But maybe maybe that left a question in the Ephesians' minds. Maybe they were thinking, well, that's great, but how in the world can I receive such tremendous riches? how could this be true of me? And so Paul prays then that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. For it is God's great power that enables him to guarantee our hope, to give us all the riches of glory, to sustain us and to secure us in our days of weakness and loss and to redeem us and save us and remake us as new creations who will live with him forever. It is God's power that grounds our confidence, and our security in Him. And so, this is what Paul prays for. And as I think about applying this to our lives, there's no way for me to know what everyone in our congregation is going through. Students and young adults, adults, I don't know what all you are facing, but I do know this, whatever you are facing, for each thing, it is God's great power. It is the knowledge of God and the hope and the glorious riches he offers us in Christ that is what we need to hold us fast in whatever we are facing. So that's the content of Paul's prayer for his fellow believers. Well, let's end then by looking at verses 20 to 23. And here, Paul ends by explaining the confidence of his prayer. And if we were to summarize it all in one word, we can say this. What gives Paul confidence in his prayer for his fellow believers? It is Christ. Christ is the confidence of Paul's prayer. In these final verses, Paul lifts up Christ as the demonstration of the power of God and the source of the power of God at work in his people. First, Paul has just prayed that the Ephesians might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. But how can we understand how great this power is? Well, Paul says we can see God's power at work in the life of Christ. You see that there in verses 19 and 20. His immeasurable greatness of his power at work or toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And so when we see God's power at work in Christ, that shows us the power of God. And Paul says we see the power of God at work in raising Christ from the dead. And bringing him back to life from the grave and transforming Christ's earthly body into a spiritual and immortal body so that resurrection power was at work in him. Not only did he raise Christ from the dead, though he also seated him in the heavenly places. And this isn't just a matter of raising Christ into the clouds. It's a matter of enthroning him at his right hand, fulfilling the vision of Psalm 110, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And not only has God's power raised up Christ and enthroned him, but then the power of God has given to Christ the name that is above every name, authority over every rule, above angels and demons, above Satan himself as the ruler of all creation in this age and the age to come. That's the power of God at work. And when we see the power of God at work in Christ, it gives us confidence that His power can sustain us and accomplish the salvation and resurrection hope that God has given us in the gospel. But then I want you to see verses 22 and 23. These are incredibly significant verses. Because here we find out that God did not just show His power in Christ. God did not just seat Christ at His right hand. having exalted Christ, God then gave this exalted Jesus to us, to the church, to be our head. What a privilege that God would, would take this exalted Jesus and give him to the church as its head so that we as the church are his body, joined to him and connected to him as our leader and our king. And the result is that Jesus Christ fills the church with his power and presence. You see what it says there, that God gave Christ to the church so that the church became his body, the fullness of him. In other words, he's the thing that fills the church. What is is it that fills the church? It's none other than Jesus Christ, the exalted King who fills all and all. And if God has given such a great and a glorious and exalted Jesus to us as our head, what could be a greatest source of strength and security? And confidence you hear really the same thought at work here as is at work in Romans eight thirty eight, where Paul says neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord why is that true That's true, because God gave Jesus, who is exalted over all those powers and angels and demons and authorities now and then, God gave that Christ to us, to be our head, to be the head of the church, to fill us with his power and presence, so that he is our fullness. Sinclair Fergus included this way, he said, Christ, in whom God's fullness dwells, now indwells the church. Filling it up with his presence, flooding it with his grace, conforming it to his image until it is filled with his likeness. And that's what it means to be a member of the church. These are the privileges into which we enter by God's grace. And we need our eyes to be opened to see how rich we are, and our eyes opened as we understand more and more the glory of Christ who dwells in us by faith. What a glorious promise! And if you don't know Christ, this is what is offered to you. Would you come to him by faith? So, brothers and sisters, here is Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer that we would grow in our knowledge of God, that God's Spirit would grant us the wisdom and understanding to know the hope that we have and the riches of our inheritance and the power at work in God's people through Christ alone. That is Paul's prayer for his fellow believers, and that's my prayer this morning, that we would grow in the understanding and knowledge of God and of his salvation and of his power at work in us, because that will give us the joy and the strength that we need to stand against any wind that blows against us. It's found in Christ. Amen. Father, how we thank you for Paul's prayer, for Paul's heart as he longs and prays that his fellow believers, would grow in the knowledge of God and that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation would open the eyes of our hearts to understand more and more who God is and the greatness of the salvation He's given us and the power of God at work in us. Would that be true, Father, and would that ground us and give us security and hope that we might stand against the evil and the temptations of our day to be steadfast and faithful in Christ to the glory of your name. We pray this for his sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.